Praise the Lord. Well, this morning, uh, since it's Mother's Day, uh, I started a, a series last Sunday talking about modern day heroes. And uh, we're just, I'm just, and I, I kind of picked on the men a little bit last week and uh, just really challenged the men. And I just believe there is a call for manhood in the body of Christ. I believe there's a call for men. But today's Mother's Day. And so I asked Vanessa about a week and a half ago if she would be, be, be prepared to preach today on Mother's Day. I believe she has a word for this house. I believe she has a word for our lives. So will you just help me welcome my daughter, Pastor Vanessa, up here today as she brings the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. No, I'll keep your water. That's fine. I drink out of it anyway. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, once again, happy Mother's Day. All of you ladies look so beautiful this morning. You know, most of the time when I preach, I have to wear boots because, you know, I'm a little bit challenged. Um, just as I told you last time, you may not know this about me, but I'm not an athlete. I know it's deceiving to look at me. You're like, she's definitely an athlete, but I'm not. So, um, so I was like, you know, it's Mother's Day, so I'm going to attempt to preach in heels today. We'll see if it works out or not. You'll know if it doesn't, I'm sure, because if I fall out, just say that was a powerful sermon and cover me up and move on. We can all go eat early. <laughs> so I wanted to, um, first of all, I had to preach on my dad's mic. So I know he wanted me to take the other mic, but I always tell him I'm going to take his mic. But I just wanted to um, preach today, and I, I have this word on the inside of me that's really stirring for mothers. And I've never preached a Mother's Day message, so I was so excited to do this. And I have spent literally hours and hours and hours this week poring over the Torah, Jewish commentaries, all sorts of things to give you a context for what I want to preach about today. And so I know Pastor Chuck was in a vein last week of, of um, modern day heroes. So I'm going to stay there today, but I want to talk about surrendered women surrendered women. Look at the woman next to you and say, are you surrendered yet? Maybe by the end of service, we will be surrendered. You see, I want to talk about this because I believe that the, the devil, the enemy has really caused a generation of women to be deceived. Can I say that? I believe that women, especially in this generation, have been greatly deceived by the enemy. Because the devil will tell a woman the ultimate goal in life is to be an independent woman in, in male-dominated systems. Would you say that's correct? Right? We write songs about independent women. We write books about how to become an independent woman. We, we have uh, TV shows about male-dominated systems and women are rising in power, right? And I just want to clarify before, before I begin, I am a woman preacher. I believe in women, okay? Can I, just, can I just say that? I believe in women. I believe women have a voice. God has given women a voice to use in their lifetime. I believe every single woman sitting in here has a voice that God has given you, and you are to do something with it in your lifetime. Can you say amen? I am 100% pro-women in this place. But what I am not for is the feminism movement that has taken over the West in America. I am not for, I am 100% for women. I am 100% against feminism. So can I talk about that for just a minute? So 
the feminism movement really began in 1917. I think I got that date right, 1917. There was a woman by the name of Jeanette Rankin in Montana, and she ran for the House of, of Representatives. And so between 1917 and 1934, women really began to be elected into these official positions. And so there was a, a headline that came out of that time period, and it read this, don't call me a lady, call me congressman. Do not call me lady, call me congressman. And I have noticed that feminism, the feminism movement is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. And the feminism movement is very progressive in nature. And so just like sin is progressive, I always heard it said like this, sin will take you further than you wanted to go and it'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay, right? And like compromise, you, you compromise a little in one area and you compromise a little in another area. And then one day you look back on your life and you're like, I don't even know how I got here, right? And so the feminism movement, which began as the fight for equality uh, of opportunity, so women having the right to vote, women have having the same access to opportunities as men, which we can say, amen, right? Amen, no problem with that. But it was never satisfied. So then it quickly progressed to don't call me lady, call me congressman. And so then the fight became not equality of opportunity, but it became the equality of role, meaning this, I can do whatever a man can do. So it wasn't about doing what a man can do. It was about having the role of a man. And I'm not saying women can't be CEOs. You go, if God has called you to the business world, go be CEO. It has nothing to do with positional things like that. I'm talking about the spirit behind it that says a woman has the right to be in a man's role. And, and this really stems out of, out of Genesis because most um, liberal progressive women will say today when they talk about women's rights, and they bring it to the context of the Bible, and they're like, well, Eve was an afterthought. Man was created, and Eve was just, you know, an afterthought. But Genesis 2 says he looked at Adam, and he said, it's not good that man be alone. So he, gave, he not only gave woman um, a name, but he gave her a role. So God never said that women and men were not equal. Culture did. Culture did. God never said that. So when it quit, it began to progress, then it was no longer about equality of opportunity or equality of role, but then it became the equality of each other where it said, I no longer want just the opportunities of a man. I no longer want the role of a man, but I want to do whatever a man can do, and I can do it better. I can do it better, and that is blatant in our society today. And I want to show you just how much this lie is being propagated through every news station you watch, through media, through outlets on TV. The idea is that women, the devil is, is, is saying women are not only equal to men, they're better than men. I want to read to you these headlines. Can you all just throw those up there for me? I did a quick search, and I'm sure you can find a whole bunch more. So American Express, an article headline said, Five ways women are better bosses than men. Okay, then you have a research study put out by Harvard Business Review. Okay, and they said this. Women are better leaders than men 
during crisis. Okay, then you have the New York Times headline, and they put out this. They said, women may be better investors than men. And then you have a headline by Market Watch, and it says, women hedge fund managers outperform men every time. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the enemy has come, and it's convinced generation after generation of women that you are now better than a man. And that light, you can see it, you can hear it, how it's spoken in today's world, and it has caused the feminism movement, which was never satisfied, and it says, I've got to have more. I've got to have more. And so can I just say this statement real quick, how the, how the Holy Spirit said to me? I'm not looking for more independent females. What I'm looking for are some surrendered women. God is not looking for a bunch of independent females who say, I've got it. I can run my life. I can do what a man can can do. I can do it better at that. I'm better than a man. I don't need a man. Come on now. Don't get quiet on me. I'll keep on going. See, that's what the world has, has told the women time and time again, generation after generation. And it's so blatant in today's culture. And women are accepting and they're believing this. And now there's this hatred that's stemming up in the feminism movement. Hatred against not only the babies that they carry in their stomach, but hatred against men and self. And that was the plan of the enemy all along. Because the devil always attacks at the place of identity. He always attacks at the place of identity. When you go back to Genesis, in the beginning, whenever whenever the serpent was talking to Eve in the Garden of Eden, I'm paraphrasing this. So he comes to Eve and he's like, Eve, you know, did God really say you can't eat from the from that tree of knowledge of good and evil? And they go back and forth and and Eve said and the, the serpent says to Eve, he says, You know, my opinion. I believe that uh, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because then you'll be just like God. Well, that's a problem. Eve was already just like God. Eve was already made in the very image of God. She had nothing to prove. She had nothing to prove. But the serpent knew well the insecurities of humanity. And he came to her and he said, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't do that? And so from from Genesis to today, he's still posing the same question. And he's going to a generation of young women today in our culture, and he's saying, did God really say? Did God really say that about you? Did God really say that about man? Can I tell you what God has called a woman? This is so interesting. I, I literally, my, I had a headache by the end of this week. I've been staring at books and screens so long. <laughs> I got lost in Jewish commentary. I needed help. So I was, I was researching all of this. And in Genesis 2, it's the only time in the Bible where this word is mentioned. God calls woman, Ezer, hey, negdo. And in only that place, it's mentioned two times. Nowhere else in the entire Bible. Ezer, hey, Negdo. And so commentaries and theologians, they had a hard time really translating what God meant when he called Eve woman. He had a, they had a hard time. So the King James Version settled on helpmate. And so we preach it a lot at weddings. We've, 
we say it a lot, women is a helper, they're a helpmate. But can I tell you today that that word actually goes a lot deeper than helpmate. Women were not just placed on the earth to be a helper to a man. That's not what God says about you. And that's where the enemy comes and he twists what God says. And he's like, you're inferior. No, can I tell you what that word means? Ezer K. Negdo, if you really search it out, what God was saying over woman was you are strength alongside. You are not just a helpmate. You are, you are the very strength alongside. And then if you, if you study it out even further, that strength is equal to the strength of a man. So it's equal strength opposite in role. Equal in strength, opposite in role. So what God was saying when he called woman by name, he was saying, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'm going to give him and provide for him an easer, a strength alongside. And it's equal in strength to Adam. Even Adam were equal in strength, always just opposite in role. And so that's what the enemy has come to do. And he's come to tell women, you were just an afterthought. God didn't really have a role for you on the earth. God never said that about you. And so women have been fighting for a seat at the table. They've been clawing their way to the top. They've been living in competition with themselves and men for all these generations. When God said from the beginning, I call you Ezer, you are strength alongside, and I have a role for you. It may not look like the counterpart role of man, but your role is just as significant, and I have called you in this earth for such a time as this to be strength alongside. Strength alongside where? Not just a man. Strength alongside every institution you enter. Everywhere you go, woman, you are strength alongside. And so what the enemy has done, what he's done, and he's done it so well, and he has convinced women, you were just an afterthought. God never said that men and women were not equal, ever. He did say they had different roles. And so the feminism movement came and it said, I'm not satisfied with equal opportunity. I need to have the role of a man. And now we see that the serpent in the Bible, in Hebrew culture, they called snakes chaos. So it was literally like chaos was talking to Eve. And chaos is still talking to a generation of women. And so chaos comes and it says, you're the head of your home, woman. You do what you want to. You're an independent female. You run that house the way you want. You raise those kids the way you want. You say what you want wherever you go. You are woman. Hear me roar. Right? And so chaos is still speaking to women today. He's still speaking. And he has come to tell women that you are an independent female and you don't need nobody. Can I tell you today, we, that's not true. That's not true. We need not only God, but we need each other. You ever wonder why church is so important, why we make church a big deal? Because you need each other. You need to belong to a community of people who can walk alongside 
And as you bring your strength alongside, and you bring your strength alongside, and you bring your strength alongside, and we, we thrive in the role that God gave us in the calling, we bring wholeness to a place where people can be healed. You are either. He's looking for surrendered women. Now, I don't know about you. I love to sing songs about surrender. I surrender all to you. Everything I give to you is holding nothing. I love that song. I much would rather not live it out. Just being, just being honest with you. Can I be honest with you? I know, I know. But I know, I know. Can I be honest with you? I really don't like surrender. I really don't like it. And I really don't like vulnerability. If you know me well, I'm not, I don't like vulnerable. I don't like crying in front of people. That's probably the worst thing in the world is for me to cry in front of someone. I hate it. So if I cry in front of you, you know that there's a very, very deep trust established. Okay? So I, I, I hate it. And God has had to work so many things out of me. And I, the greatest battles of my life have always been at the place of surrender. <laughs> the greatest battles I've had to fight in my life have always been at the place of surrender. So why don't we like to surrender? I think it comes down to the word trust. Because it's much easier to surrender to an answer I prefer. It's so much easier when God just asks me to surrender to something I already gave an okay to. Right? But oftentimes that's not the case. And I want to tell you about a story. We often talk about Moses. If, you, if you've heard me preach, I always preach out of Exodus. I love that book. It's my favorite book in the Bible. Well, I want to tell you about Moses' mom. Her name was Jochebed. And Jochebed was the mother of Miriam, Moses, and Aaron. Aaron first. Okay? And so Moses, he was the youngest, and he was born during a time when the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites. And Pharaoh, he sends out this decree because he gets paranoid. And he's like, hey, the Hebrew children, they're, they're multiplying, and there's a lot of, of males in that Hebrew area down there, and I'm afraid they're going to overthrow us as the Egyptians. So he became paranoid, and so he goes to the, the Hebrew midwives, and he says, okay, if, and I'm really hot up here in these monitors. I'm scared I'm going to feed back. Oh, okay. So the, so the, the Hebrew midwives, they, they say to, to Pharaoh, he tells, he tells them, he says, hey, you need to kill him. If it's a female baby, she can live. If it's a male, kill him. And the midwives say, they said, well, we fear God. We're not going to do it. So time goes on, and, and Pharaoh notices that the numbers were not going down, that there was still all these male babies being born. And so Pharaoh makes this new decree, and he says, okay, all male babies born are going to be thrown into the Nile River. Egyptian, Jew, doesn't matter. Kill them all. And so you have Jochebed. She's a mom, and she, she's just delivered this newborn little baby boy in the middle of chaos and turmoil and heaviness. Can you imagine your mom's in here? I'm talking to the moms today. Can you imagine being pregnant and hearing what Pharaoh says? And he says, I'm going to kill your baby when he's born. And then the reality comes and she sees that baby and it's a boy. What do you do? And so Jochebed, the Bible says that she was not afraid of Pharaoh's decree. She was not afraid. And so the Bible says that she hid him for three months, and then she put him in a basket, and she sent him down the Nile River with his sister Miriam watching close by to see where he would end up. 
and he, he drifts past, past Pharaoh's daughter bathing in the water, in the Nile, and she takes him and raises him as her own. Surrender can be very painful. And I read that story from the eyes of a mother, and I kept thinking to myself, God, I imagine she said at some point, God, I'm your chosen people. I'm a part of your chosen people. This is not supposed to be this way. Have you ever said that to God, or is it just me? I know I've said to God so many times, God, this can't be what you intended for my life. God, this can't be. I have dreams. I I know you as a mom, you have dreams, and you have hopes and preferences for your babies. What do you do when the surrender is painful? What do you do? What do you do when you don't understand why God is asking you to do what he's asking you to do? What do you do when you say life's not fair? I think sometimes in Christianity we preach a really peachy gospel, really peachy, full of roses. But what do you do when it doesn't look fair? What do you do when the very thing God is asking you to surrender is the thing that's dearest to your heart? And it costs you so much. What do you do? And I, I asked that, that um, very question to God so many times in my life. And I believe it, it comes down to this question you have to ask yourself. Do I really want what God wants? Or am I asking him to sign off on what I prefer? Do I really want what God wants? Or am I asking him to sign off on my preference? I'm sure Jochebed had a preference, and it wasn't to surrender her baby. That wasn't, that couldn't have been her preference. But what do you do when God asks you to do something that you do not prefer? What do you do when you're looking around the scenery of your life and you say, God, you must not be in this? Is it just me? Have you all led like really perfect lives? Come on. We sometimes we get in these battles and it's heavy and it's hard. And we are asking God these questions. These are real questions. Religion doesn't make everything better. And we say to people, just come to Jesus. Just come and all of your problems will go away. It's not true. It's not true. The Bible is full of people, believers who died for their faith, full of believers who died not getting what they promised, believers who died who said, this can't be the God who saved me. What do you do when life is unfair? What do you do? And Jochebed found herself in this place, and God says, I need you to surrender. That would be the last thing I wanted to do. I'm a fighter, so I would probably want to go, like, devise a plan to kill Pharaoh. I don't know. I'm just telling you my personality. I would take up bow hunting or something and, you know, just find a window. I I don't know. But But God said, no, I want you to surrender. So what do you do when you say it wasn't supposed to be this way? And there's another woman in the story. I just, I'm going to give you a paraphrase of this, but it's, it's a story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, this story caused my headache. 
because I poured over so many hours of research for this story. But what it showed me blew me away. And so whenever, you can talk back to me, whenever you hear the story of the woman at the well, what's the first thing you remember about her? Anybody? You can talk. She was married five times. What else? She was an... She was a Samaritan, and she was an, she was a woman of loose morals. Can we say it like that? Right? She was a woman of loose morals. They believed her to be an adulteress. Right? Can I tell you today that that probably wasn't the case? The story, for you to understand this woman, you have to understand the context of when this story was written. This story was written in a time when men were not even allowed to initiate conversation with women in public, not even their daughters or, or their wives, they, because women were considered second-class citizens. They weren't regarded highly by anyone, okay? So Jesus, when he comes to the woman at the well and he initiates a conversation with her, that's taboo. That's not allowed. That's, you can't do that in Jewish culture. And not only was Jesus a man initiating a conversation with a woman, but he was, initi- he was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And he was initiating a conversation with a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were considered half-breeds. Because when Assyria defeated Israel, they carried off the northern kingdom. They killed all the Israelite women's husbands. The soldiers intermarried with them in order to, to water down Jewish lineage. Okay? So now you have a, you have a different scene taking place. You have Jesus, a man, initiating a conversation with a woman, which was not allowed. And you have Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, initiating a conversation with the Samaritan, which was absolutely not allowed. So here Jesus is, and he's coming on this scene, and he's stepping over all sorts of cultural lines and defying all sorts of Jewish traditions. He's, his reputation was at stake at this point. Okay? And so then he, he enters into this conversation, and they're talking about worship and where to worship. And, and um, he says to the woman, go get your husband. And she says, well, I'm not married. And he goes, yeah, you're correct. You've had five, five husbands, and you're living with one that's not your husband. Can I tell you about divorce in that time? In the Mishnah, which was a, the collection of Jewish oral traditions, rabbis would write different rules, right? And I just want to tell you this one thing. One of the rabbis, this is just to show you how disregarded women were in that time. One of the rabbis who was especially hateful towards women, he died five years before Jesus was born. And he said this, thank thou Jehovah, he did not make me a woman. And then you had another rabbi who said, better the Torah be burned than to be read by a woman. Okay, so this is the, this is the context of, of how women were treated in that day. And so then you have rules on divorce. And the especially hateful rabbi, who I can't pronounce his name, but he said this. He said, if a woman displeases her husband in any way, he can divorce her. So if she burns his food, he can divorce her. If her menstrual cycle was longer than normal, she could be considered ceremonially unclean, and he could divorce her. If she was infertile, if she couldn't have a baby, he could divorce her. And so most modern-day commentators will tell you that they don't believe that woman was a, a, a woman of loose morals because it was very rare for a man to marry a divorced woman at all. 
But to marry a divorced woman five times, that was not, that did not happen. Why? Because every time she was divorced, it was like, and, and, and divorce could only be initiated by a man. And so it was like he would take this certificate of shame and he would give it to her. And she would wear this label that said, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. And so can you imagine she was given certificate of shame after certificate of shame after certificate of shame, probably because she couldn't have a baby. That's what most commentators agree today is the correct translation of that, of that story. And so the significance of the woman at the well is not that Jesus was having a conversation with an immoral woman. He was having a conversation with a broken woman. He was having a conversation with a woman who had been told by society, by other people, by other Jews, by by God-fearing people, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. And it was like men would see her and they would say, well, we got to pick somebody else because she's just not worth it. And so that's the context of this story. She was not a woman with loose morals. She was a broken woman. And so Jesus comes, and he's having a conversation with her in her brokenness, and he's not telling her, you should be ashamed of how you're living. You should be ashamed of not being able to bear children. You should be ashamed of all of these things. That is not the tone God is using. He wants to just talk and have an intimate conversation with this woman. Why was it intimate? Because she didn't. She was a Samaritan. She didn't know the Torah. She didn't know what worship meant. She had no idea. And Jesus is talking about the very worship. It was intimate. And he was like, I want to have this conversation with people tell with people who say you're not worth it. Woman, easer, strength alongside. Woman, easer, strength alongside. Equal in strength. And so that's who God is talking to. In this, and it completely wrecked me, and I started crying when I read this, when I, when I read these commentaries, because I said, you know, the problem with labels, and it was like she had this big label on her that said, I'm not worth it, and the problem with labels is that the longer a label is on you, the more you believe it. The more you walk around and you have a label, label of shame on your life, the more you believe it. The longer you walk through hard places in your life, the storms, the battles, the tragedies, the grief, the loss, you walk through things because it's life. And what life does is it comes to put a label on you. And the longer you stick with that label, you begin to respond to a name God never called you. We read these stories and and we forget that they're real people. She was a real woman, ostracized by society. Everyone told her, you're not worth it. She wore a label of shame on her for something she couldn't even control. She was disenfranchised and vulnerable. That's probably why she was living with another man, because in that time... Women had no economic protection if they were not married. And so you look at the story in that light. And for years she wore shame and labels. And here's the thing. 
Whenever you walk through hard seasons in your life, when you say the words, it wasn't supposed to be this way, what happens is what's on you starts to get in you. And then what's in you leads you to bitter places. Unhealed spaces in your life will always bring you to bitter places. God does not bring you into a community in a church to, to get healing and to experience healing just to leave you there. He understands that the longer you hide your wounds, the longer you hide the labels that shame has placed on you, the longer you don't deal with the issues of life, what happens is it will lead you to the very bitterness of life. It's all throughout the Bible. You have all of these examples of these people where you don't even know their name. You just know the label that society gave them. The woman with the issue of blood, the paralyzed man, blind Bartimaeus. Because the longer you stay in a label, the quicker you are to answer to a name that God never put on you. And now we're seeing a generation of women, and they're, they're broken women. They've been through some stuff. They've experienced some disappointment in life. They've struggled with heartache, with grief, with loss. And instead of coming to a house and saying, God, I need you to restore me, they come and we try and cover up our wounds because we don't want to be vulnerable and we don't want people to see that we've got weakness in us. <laughs> because surrender can be painful. And I want to tell you just one more story. I know we're getting, we're getting close to time. But there was a story in the Bible, in the book of Ruth. Her name was Naomi. Naomi's name meant sweetness. And Naomi was truly living in the sweetness of God. She was married. She had two sons. Life was good. And then all of a sudden, tragedy came. And her husband died. And then both of her sons died as well. Can you imagine walking through that? Everything you've loved in life has been stripped away. And then at the same time, the place where, uh, where she dwelled, Moab, was experiencing great famine. So now she's in this predicament where she doesn't have any economic support. Her husband's died. Her sons are both dead. She's walking through a major loss and grief. And now she has to leave her home to go to Judah because that's where the Lord was providing. I'm sure she had memories there. I'm sure she had stories there. I'm sure she had friends there. But God said, you got to leave this place and come to where I'm providing. And so Naomi leaves with her daughter-in-law Ruth, and they go to Bethlehem, Judah, and they get there. And she, the people come, and they're, they're like, hey, Naomi, it's been a long time. I'm paraphrasing. Of course, they didn't say that. But they're like, hey, Naomi. And, and she says, don't call me that. Don't call me sweetness any longer. From now on, call me Mara, which meant bitter. Don't call me the name that God has put on me. Call me the label that has defined me. Call me the circumstances that have shaped my life. Call me the heartache 
that I've experienced and the grief I've suffered. Don't you dare call me the name God has called me because he has dealt bitterly with me. How many times in our life do we come to a place where life was unfair? And instead of saying, God, I trust you, even in the place of surrender, we say, don't call me by that name. God has turned his back on me. And I'm at a bitter place. And now I wear the label of bitterness for everyone to see. You may not see the root, but the fruit is always on its way to being produced. So when a, when a sprout of bitterness rises up in you, and I want to talk to women for a minute, because a lot of the times women get, get, a, get a lot of uh, diss about their emotions. Can I tell you today, God gave you your emotions. Your emotions are indicators of what is happening on the inside of you. It's good to be mad. Get mad. It's okay to be sad. Grieve. Mourn. Experience your emotion. The problem is when you get stuck in it. And so this is what was happening to Naomi. She was experiencing all of these emotions, and she had all of these, these things and pressures of life on her, economic stress, tragedy, grief. All of this was weighing on her shoulders, and she was like, I don't know what to do. And what was on her got in her. And what was in her led her to the very place of bitterness where she changed her name and she said, God, you've dealt bitterly with my life. The enemy's tactics have been the same from the very beginning. He always wants you to come question the goodness of God so that you will go find the answer from another source. He wants you to question the character of God. So when you say, God, how could you? God, you turned your back on me. God, this wasn't how this was supposed to go down. God, I don't understand. And what he wants you to do is you take those questions and instead of running to Jesus, the very one who called you strength from the beginning, the very one who put of affirmation on you from the very beginning, the one who says you're chosen, you matter. Instead of carrying those questions to him, we find a different source to, to find the answer. And the enemy is right there waiting, and he's like, just come ask me. I'll come tell you about God. Come ask me. I'll come tell you about yourself. You are not who God said you are. Did God really say? And so tragedy, you have to be careful when you walk through places and seasons that are just difficult and unfair and tragedy and grief and loss, let me tell you something. I have prayed for people wholeheartedly to get healed and they died. I have fasted and I have prayed for God for a breakthrough, for a miracle. And God said, no. What do you do when you wanted a yes but God says no? What do you do when you're begging God and you're on your face in prayer and you say, God, I need you to lift the burden, and he doesn't? We don't answer these questions in church because we want it to be a peachy gospel. But I'm telling you, you have to learn how to walk through seasons of grief 
And instead of running away, you find God in the midst of it. And you say, God, I trust you. Even though I don't understand. Even though it's not fair. Even though this is not how it was supposed to happen. But God, I will not forfeit my place of surrender. Because I understand that life begins when I die. Life only can begin when you decide to die. And you decide that it doesn't have to be my way. It doesn't have to be my preference. It doesn't have to be my will for me to stand and with my head held high and say, God, I trust you. What do you do? When it's not your preference. And what do you do when God says no? I will never forget I was living in South Africa. And I I lived in a house of 40 people. I roomed with five girls. You were never alone. And I wanted to be alone. So I found a balcony and I was out there journaling. I remember the journal. I remember where I was sitting, what I had on, everything. And I was praying about something specific. And I kept asking God, God, just say yes or no. God, what, you know, and I really meant just say yes. God, just say yes, you know. And so I, I'm praying this prayer, and I'll never forget the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, Vanessa, you will always hear yes if you're, want, if you're not willing to hear no. You will always come to me with a lens that you hear from if you are not first willing to hear me say no. And so time after time again, I was hearing yes, but God was saying no. He was saying no. And what do you do? Because in a Christian context, we only believe God says yes. God is here to bless. God's here to favor. God's here to do whatever you want to do. But what do you do when that's not the case? I know every single one of you in here have stories, and you have past, and you have struggles and places where you say, I don't even know how to believe anymore. Pastor Cordy, you can go ahead and come up. I know we're short on time. And I want to read to you just this, this one last scripture. Well, I have two more. But it talks about what to do when a sprout of bitterness begins to, to, to get on the inside of you. So Hebrews 12, 14. In every relationship, be swift to choose peace over competition and run swiftly towards holiness. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Watch over each other to make sure that no one misses the revelation of God's grace. And here's the next part. Make sure no one hurts of many. Now that, that, that one verse before that, make sure no one fails to keep up with God's grace. It's not actually translated like that. It's translated to read like this. Make sure no one fails to keep up with God's grace. See, bitterness, what happens when you become bitter over life and the circumstances of your life, that bitterness causes you to drift. And the further you drift, the more you lose sight of God. And God always provides a moment where grace is tangible, where he says, I have provided this for you for healing. When you walk through something difficult, you know how he says he's close as the mention of his name? It's because he has provided grace in the moment for you to deal with what is on you so it does not get in you. He's provided grace for that. But what bitterness does is it causes you to drift.
further and further away, and therefore you cannot keep up with the grace of God. Unhealed hurt becomes unleashed hurt. Have you ever found woman, women, ladies, have you ever found in your home you're unleashing some hurt, but it's really just unhealed hurt? And the danger of bitterness is in that verse in Hebrews. It says it causes trouble and it poisons the heart of just you. It poisons the heart of many. What does that mean? If you are in this place today and you have unhealed places in your heart and it's led you to bitter places, you are not the only one that's being affected. Your children in your house are going to be affected. Your relationship every way around will be affected. Because God said, I never intended for my people to live in a moment of hurt. I always had a plan to provide grace that would help them move on. But bitterness causes drift. It causes you to lose sight and you can't keep up anymore with the grace of God for your life. And God is saying to women, all in this place today. Maybe you've been dealing with bitterness in your life. Maybe there's been some things in your life, in your story, and you say, this just wasn't fair. Or maybe you've, you've said to God, God, don't even call me by name anymore. Don't even call me Vanessa. Just call me bitter because you've been unfair to me. Come on, that's real. That's real. You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe she's saying that about God. We think it. It's real. And the unhealed places in your life, God says there's grace for. There's grace for. And not grace to get over it. The Holy Spirit said to me one day, because I was, I have three boys, and I'm, I'm definitely a boy mother, and I'm working on patience. But God said to me, I was, I was correcting one of my kids, and I told him to get over it. I said, get over it. Get over it. And I, when I tell you the Holy Spirit about slammed the book over my head, <laughs> that's how it felt. And he said, Vanessa, don't tell him to get over it. Help him move on from it. You are the parent in your home. So you have to create environments where your kids can catch up to the grace of God because it's there even for them. They're not too young. And so you have to show them how to get back where you can find the grace of God again and say, I'm not asking you to do something that I can't even do. I can't even get over hurt. I can't even get over offenses. I can't even get over the tragedies and the grief and the loss. God never asked you to get over it. He said, I provided grace for you to move on from it. I provided you the grace to move on and not get stuck in a moment in your story where you say, God, you're not fair. God, you're not fair. 
forgiveness. He wasn't waiting for her to get it together. He came to her and he said, I have a name for you. And you don't have to stay like this. Where's Savannah Bowers? Can you come up and help me? Everyone can stand. We're getting ready to close. So the woman at the well, maybe you're here today. And maybe your story is a lot like hers. Maybe you've been misunderstood. Maybe your character has been misaligned. Maybe people have talked about you. Maybe they've said untrue things that hurt. Maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't been able to have a baby. Maybe you've struggled with shame in your life. And there's deep pain and wounds. And here's what the enemy does. He does this right here. He says, okay, now you're shame. You're not Savannah, you're shame. And parade it around for everyone to see. Look at Savannah. She's shame. And then maybe, maybe like the woman at the well, maybe you've come out of a, a messy situation or relationship. And the devil, he does this. He does this. Okay, you're not good enough now. You're never going to be who God said you'll be. You have failed. Don't you dare look for redemption. You're not good enough. Or maybe like Naomi. Can I put this right there? Maybe like Naomi, you have some unhealed wounds in here today. And you're, you're starting to see this fruit pop up in your life, bitter fruit. And maybe you have children in here today and you say, I refuse to allow what is on me continue to remain in me. I'm going to uproot some things today because I refuse for the label to get on my child generational curses I refuse to allow if you have daughters in this place if you have sons whatever you have you better not let the labels that the enemy and life has put on you cause your children to pick them up and run with it don't you dare allow that to happen and then and then the enemy comes and he goes no you're you're a screw up Maybe you lost a business. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe, I don't know, whatever happened. Maybe you screwed up. Maybe you failed at something. And the enemy says, well, it's never going to get any better. That's just who you are. Wherever you go, you screw up. And he begins to define you by a moment instead of the name God has called you. Worthless. broken. Maligned. Maybe you're, maybe people talk about you and they, they say things about you that aren't true. I'll never forget. I, I was in South Africa and God, the Holy Spirit, he dealt with me so much there. It's okay. They can follow. They got the picture. But the Holy Spirit said to me, because I, I remember someone saying to me, they said, Vanessa, you're so aggressive. Why are you so aggressive all the time? And because of my personality, I'm very, if you don't know me, I'm very direct. And I'm very to the point. And sometimes I can say things in a way that hurts other people. And I don't mean to. But I'm very honest in how I feel. <laughs> my parents and my husband say amen. 
And I will tell you what I think. I just will. And I remember someone told me, they said, Vanessa, you are so aggressive. And the Holy Spirit checked me in that moment. And he said, you're not aggressive. I made you to be assertive. And that is okay. I made you the way you are. You are assertive. But here's where I need you to be aggressive. You deal aggressively with the labels that the enemy tries to put on your sisters, on your brothers, on your children. Don't you dare let the enemy put labels on you that get on the inside of you and let the enemy tell you who you are. You are chosen in this house today. Woman, you are either in this place today. And God said, I have called you. I have chosen you. I have labeled you. You are strength alongside. And don't you think for a second that it's just for a man. You are rising in leadership. And everywhere you step, you take the strength of God and you say something now. You are easier. You are woman. Easer, strength of God. Equal in strength. If you're with your husband, if you're with your, your significant other, your child, hold their hand. You are equal in strength, but you are opposite in role. You are opposite in role. And you don't have to put a label on what that looks like. I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm a woman preacher. My husband, he could care less to hold a microphone. That doesn't make me the authority figure in my house. Because my role is not his role. I'm confident in who God called me to be. Therefore, surrender is not a battle. Surrender is just the way. It's just the way. And I know we, we, we have to leave in a few minutes and we're going to celebrate moms, but I don't want to miss this moment. If you're, if you're a mom in here, if you're a lady, and you say, you know what, I've had some major struggles in my life, and the enemy has done his best to put labels on me, and now it's got in me, and I'm sprouting roots of bitterness, I'm, I'm out of control emotionally, I'm, I'm losing it on everyone, Un, unhealed hurt has become unleashed hurt in my home, and I don't know what to do. Come up to the altar because we want to pray for you. Because I believe God has provided grace today. Grace that says, you are who I called you to be. You are who I called you to be. You are not less than. You are not less than. And you are not defined by the labels that society has placed on you. God said, strength has always been in you. From the very beginning, strength was your name. And the devil came and he tried to say, you're weak. You'll never make it. You're not good enough. How dare you be all that God has called you to be? 
you're not worth that. But God is going to break something over your life today. And you're going to walk out of here and you're going to tell everyone you know, I am easier. See, here's what the woman at the well did. As soon as God, as soon as Jesus had that conversation with her, she ran back to her community and she began to evangelize the gospel because she said, no longer what is what, what was on me is in me and now I have freedom and I've got to go tell my sisters about it. I've got to go tell my family. I've got to go bring them to the place of freedom because you don't have to live like that any longer. So I want you to lift up your hands. We're going to make a prayer. If our prayer team, if our, if our staff, our elders, can you come pray? Help us pray. But we're going to begin to pray, and I want you to lift up your voice. Whatever label has been placed on you, begin to say it out loud. Don't be ashamed. You say that label out loud and say, today is the day it's broken off of my life. And today is the day that I remember who God's called me to be. Easer. I want you to call that out and say, I am easer. I am strength alongside. And God has had a plan from the very beginning of time. So for the next 30 seconds, ladies, lift up your voice. Begin to shout. Begin to let freedom take place in your heart. Come on, lift up your voice. Lift up your 